Eric Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. The purpose of Resistance Radio is to help ignite a resistance movement to prevent the murder of the planet by capitalism and industrial civilization. To that end, every week I will interview some great writer or activist who is working toward the revolution of values we so desperately need if we're to stop this culture from killing the planet. Today's guest is Lear Keith. Um, she is the author of multiple books, including The Vegetarian Myth and Deep Green Resistance. So, hi, Lear. Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thanks for being on here. So I guess the first question I'd like to ask is um, that I, I want to talk about agriculture. And can you – oh, shoot, what's the guy's name? Who's the guy who said it's the biggest mistake humans have ever made? Uh, Jared, Jared Diamond. Yeah, Jared Diamond has said that agriculture is the biggest mistake that humans have ever made. And Dick Manning had some great things to say about it, too. Um, Actually, some bad things to say about it, but well, in a great way. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. So can you, um, can you talk about what's wrong with agriculture? Yes, and I would like to back up first and explain why that's important. The reason it's important is because agriculture is the basis of civilization. And I think um, the whole point of the show is to make people understand that this is a living arrangement that had no future. So the end was written into the beginning. Um, and the reason is primarily because agriculture is an inherently destructive activity. So you have to understand what agriculture is. In very brute terms, you take a piece of land, you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, right, and then you plant it to human use. So it's biotic cleansing. All those other millions of creatures that should be living there have nowhere to go. And that's a long way of saying mass extinction, okay, because that's what agriculture is. Um, so there's a few problems. First is that um, it lets the human population grow to some rather large numbers because instead of sharing that land with all those other creatures, most of whom are doing the basic work of life, um, you're only growing humans on it. So we have this just you know, catastrophic rise in human numbers, which we've seen over the last 10,000 years. Um, the second problem is that you're destroying the topsoil, and topsoil is the basis of life itself, at least land life, not ocean life, but terrestrial life, yes. So we owe our entire existence to six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. So right now, 80% of the food calories that are used to support um, the current human population come from those agricultural foods. So it's only possible to support this number of people by taking over the vast swaths of the planet from all these other creatures that, that need a home um, and then just using it to support human beings. Um, so except for the very last uh, 46 remaining tribes of hunter-gatherers, the human race has made itself dependent on this inherently destructive activity on agriculture, and it's killing the planet. So this is not a plan with the future. Um, it's drawdown, and the end was written into the beginning. So what you're mostly drawing down is fossil soil. I mean, we've all heard of fossil fuel and probably fossil water, but fossil soil is um, another really basic concept that we should all be familiar with. Um, so soil takes many, many, many um, centuries to grow an inch of soil. And in a very brief period of time, agriculture destroys that. So just to put a number on it, one season of planting your basic row crop, so wheat or corn or soy or whatever, you can destroy 2,000 years of soil. And if you don't believe me, you can go to Google Images and type in Dust Bowl first day. And you can see pictures of these farms in South Dakota that literally lost all their topsoil, all of it, in a 12-hour period on the first day of the Dust Bowl. 
Um, so that's drawdown, and it's drawdown in a really big way. So does that explain it, or should I keep going? So how does how 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 does it how does it how does agriculture actually? I mean, you call it biotic cleansing. I mean, how does that actually work? How does it actually first off commit the biotic cleansing, and second off, how does it destroy the soil? What what happens? I mean, it's, you. Okay, great, good question. So um, I want all the listeners to think about what's outside their bedroom window or their back door or even their front door. Probably it's a little piece of land, you know, 10 feet by 10 feet, depending. Maybe you live in the country. But if you live anywhere urban or suburban, you're going to see a tiny little patch of land, and it's mostly going to be grass, probably Kentucky bluegrass or something like that, that was put there as a decoration. Now, if you want to grow a garden, what do you have to do? Well, you have to dig up that grass. You can't just throw lettuce seeds on top of it and hope for the best. I mean, I can tell you what will happen, and it's exactly nothing. There is no way that the annual seeds of those domesticated vegetables are ever going to outcompete that grass. Grass is fabulous stuff. It does not die. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, invincible. Um, and so to remove it, you have to apply a whole bunch of labor. Um, you're going to have to dig and dig and dig and get rid of it. Um, then, with the soil bared, you can plant whatever annual crop you were thinking of planting. So to have a garden, it would be lettuce or tomatoes or squash or whatever. But those are annual crops. Right? They only come once. They're not. They're not going to be here again next year. You, that's what an annual means. It's, they only grow for like annum, one year. Um, and that, that's in, um, in contrast to perennials, which grow many years. So trees are perennials. Clearly, you know they can grow two thousand years out here in the redwoods. Um, grasses are perennials. There, well, there are annual grasses, but most gra- grasses are perennials. Um, and then there's lots of things in between that are also perennials, like shrubs and vines and whatnot. But then there's a, another category of plants that are annuals, and they only grow for one year or maybe even two or three seasons, and then they're done. And these different, these two different categories of plants, they have a very different function in nature. Um, the perennials are really like, um, I mean, the, the perennials, everything on, of terrestrial life depends on those, per, those perennials in place. Um, they do a couple of really basic things, one is which, because they live a long time, they have the actual time, they have the capacity to have a really deep root system. So their roots go down really, really, really far because they have many years to get there. And once they're there, um, they can actually break up rock, so the substrata that our planet is made from. And by breaking up that rock, they make the minerals available to every other living creature on the planet. They are the ones that recirculate those minerals and keep them coming up to the surface so that other plants and soil creatures and ultimately animals can eat them. I mean, without those minerals, we're all dead. Like so iron. The plants do that for us. What's that? Like iron. Or yeah, like iron, like anything, like zinc, like you know, manganese, and we, you name it, um, selenium. Um, it's it's the plants that do that, and they are the only ones that can do that. Annuals do not have deep root systems, and this is really important for people to understand. They don't live long enough to develop root systems. They're not. It doesn't. It's not part of their genetic code to make deep root systems. They have one purpose, and that's to create a giant seed head. That's what annuals do. They have a really short period of time. They're only going to live that two or three seasons, and everything is about the continuation of the species. And their one shot at a future is to have a great big seed head, is to produce that baby and wrap it in as much nutrients and then as many defenses as it can, and that gives you a great big seed. And that's why annual seeds tend to be way bigger than perennial seeds, because it's, it's, it's got to last. You know, it's got to make sure that that, that that plant baby survives when the time comes. Um, 
So not only do those perennial plants break up the rock and do the mineral thing, but also those really deep root systems are what let the water table recharge because every little tiny filament of root helps water. Every time it rains, the water can now enter the soil down through that channel of the root system. And then when the community needs that water, again, later in the summer, say, when it's dry, it's like a great big sponge, and those perennial plants can, can pull on that water as they need it and keep the whole community alive. So that's what perennials do. And uh, I guess the third really important thing is they keep, um, they keep the soil covered at all times. So if you think about a forest or you think about a prairie, um, you do not see bare soil. You'll see duff in a forest, which is decaying plant matter. And, of course, in a, in a, in a real prairie, you're not going to see really any bare soil. You're just going to see, um, you know, plants. Just for as far as the eye can see, it'll just be perennial grasses. And that's really important because without being protected, the soil, it's just like the rest of us. You know, it, it dies when it's exposed. So the sun bakes it and the wind blows it away and the rain compacts it. And you just end up with dust, essentially, instead of living matter. So that's, that's what perennials do. Now, there's a role for annuals in nature, which is, you know, another way of saying that nature loves an opportunist. And there are opportunities in nature for these annual plants. So if there's an emergency situation, uh, some kind of a disaster like a fire or a flood or um, an earthquake, um, when a landslide, you know, when the, the ground might be bared for some, some reason, um, well, that's an emergency in nature because that's the basis of life now being degraded. So immediately the annuals spring to life. It's because the perennials have been cleared away by this disaster, right? So there's a fire or a flood. Now you can picture... You know, the bank of a river has been wiped dry by, you know, wiped clean by a flood. It's just mud. And the first thing that happens is all those annual seeds, those great big baby seeds, they've been waiting in the soil for their moment. There's no competition now from the perennials and the perennial root systems. Now they can spring to life, and they do. So they will cover that bare soil for a year or two. They are, it's like if you cut yourself, you know, your skin, your hand, your arm, you would put a Band-Aid on it. And that's what the annuals do. They provide that Band-Aid. Now, eventually, your skin's going to knit back together, and that's the perennial grasses or the forest trees coming back in, and they knit that back together in the same way, and then you don't need the Band-Aid anymore. So in the same way, the annuals, um, you know, you won't see them anymore in the landscape, and their seeds, again, lie buried until they're needed for an emergency. So it's not like annuals are bad and perennials are good. It's just that most of, you know, the, the plant matter, the cellulose matter on the planet is going to be perennials. Um, but the annuals have their moment, and it's when those emergencies happen. So the problem with agriculture is it's that emergency over and over and over. In order to plant those giant seed heads, in order for them to have a chance, you've got to clear the land. So you have to remove the grasses or pull down the forest, right? And then you can plant those seeds. Um, so corn or wheat or, you know, whatever it's going to be. Uh, that's the only way that you can do it. You cannot simply sprinkle them in the grass and hope for the best or sprinkle them in a forest. Nothing will happen. We all know this as gardeners. Um, so just extend that across the planet. That's where um, all of those annual monocrops, that's where they come from. It's by destroying the grasslands of the world um, and ultimately pulling down a lot of the forests as well. And these are the demands of agriculture. So you can't just do it once. Um, it has to be done over and over. It is a war against the living world because the world doesn't want to be a monocrop. This is a living planet, and it wants to stay alive, and that means protecting that topsoil. It also means that all of those plants and animals really want their homes. 
So you're going to be fighting a war against all those plants and animals um, that want to come back. So all the perennial grasses, all the trees. Anybody who's garden knows that you're forever fighting the grasses that want to be there. Um, you know, and, and if you let it go for a few years, what will eventually come back, of course, is the secession of either the forest or the prairie. And which, in one way, is, I mean, really, that's ultimately the hope, is that if, if we just get out of the way, this planet will repair. Um, that, that, that drive that life wants to live is, I mean, that's, it's such a profound impulse in every living creature that they would take their homes back if we simply stopped fighting that war. But that's what agriculture is. And a lot of people don't understand this, and I think it's because we've been living in an agricultural society for really 10,000 years now. Um, I mean, you know, ultimately this started way back, you know, ancient Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent and all of that, but it's a direct line, you know, that eventually it conquers Europe, and then, you know, the Europeans bring it to the North and South America, and they do a bunch of conquering as well, and, you know, eventually this is what you end up with is the whole world has just been covered with these annual monocrops, as, as much of it as, as could be. Um, and, yeah, we've reached the end. By 1950, the world was out of topsoil. And since that point, we've actually been eating fossil fuel instead of soil because the soil's gone. I mean, we've skinned the planet alive. So fossil fuel took over instead, which certainly brings with it a whole other set of horrors, which are frankly worse. So um, have I answered your question? I feel like I'm just well, rolling. No, that's so great. And, and I have a few directions to go from here. But before we, we go in those directions, I, I, I want to mention a book I just recently read that was pretty fabulous which and pretty heartbreaking was called a country so full of game and it was about it was early european explorers accounts of iowa and i know for most of us when we think of iowa we think of nothing but cornfields but it ends up that iowa was one of the most um wildlife rich regions of the country with the uh, sort of interplay between the eastern forests and the Great Plains and um, and I mean when I think of Iowa I don't I don't actually think of a place that's rich in wildlife and that's just a great example of what um, agriculture does yeah and of course another example is Indiana um, which again we don't think of as being a place filled with wetlands but um, there was the Limberlost, which was a very famous swamp, essentially, just a great big wetland that was made famous by a series of books. That was The Girl of the Limberlost was the first one. That was novels that were written in, I guess, the 30s and the 40s. Um, and many, many people still go there, and they go to the, there's like a state park that, you know, sort of memorializes this is where these books took place, and everybody wants to see the Limberlost. It's not there. So over and over, you know, these park rangers have to say, it's gone. It's just completely eradicated. It was drained, you know, and turned into a cornfield. And so you cannot see it because it's not here anymore. Um, and the girl in that book, actually, um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a novel. It's not true, but you can imagine that some of this might have been true. She's living in terrible poverty with a really abusive situation with her family, but she's very determined to uh, get herself through school. And she does this by being essentially a naturalist because she knows the place so well and loves particularly the butterflies and the moths and stuff. So she's, this is how she's able to provide for her school fees. So they're, in that way, they're really they're amazing books because the the woman who wrote it, uh, Jean Stratton Porter, really loved that that swampy area, that wetland, and it's just gone. It's all just gone. It's all been turned into corn. Speaking of the effects of agriculture and um, things disappearing or beings disappearing, 
I just read last night that this year has been a complete, complete, complete catastrophe of monarch butterflies. Um, that they, places that even recently where they would still have a few are, are seeing none. Um, and it's because of, uh, in this case, it's because of milkweed. And because milkweed has been, has been it's because of Roundup has been killing all the milkweed. Um, and that's so all we can all have soybeans, right? Yeah. The, um, um, and I also mean, there are descriptions of, not even that from that long ago, 100 years ago, of, like, I don't know, is it flocks of butterflies? What do, what do butterflies gather in? What's the word for them? Do you know? I have no idea. Well, the flocks or the schools or the pods or whatever it is that butterflies travel in, um, their social grouping, um, miles long, you would have these butterflies. Miles. If you can imagine a cloud of butterflies miles long on the horizon. Um, and this was just a regular sight that people would see everywhere across the Americas, which would well, be butterflies like that. And before we move forward more, I guess if we, if we really want to talk about the destructive effects of agriculture, um, can we talk for just a moment about the Fertile Crescent? Well, yeah, everybody has seen pictures of, you know, the Iraq War at this point. It's been going on for 10 years or whatever. And, um, you know, you picture that region and you picture rock and sand. And there's nobody on the planet would call that place the Fertile Crescent. But it was once upon a time quite fertile. And, you know, the, you can go to all the places that where agriculture first started, there were seven places around the globe, and pretty much all of them look like that now. That is the inevitable endpoint. That is what happens when you clear away the forests and the grasslands and you drain the wetlands. You remove the life that wants to be there. Um, you know, you can keep that going for somewhere between 800 and 2,000 years. That's the length of every civilization. Um, and they last as long as their topsoil. And then when the topsoil is gone, they collapse, ultimately. That's what makes them collapse. And you could look at ancient Rome, or you know, you can look at any of these giant power centers from history, and it's the same pattern over and over. I mean, by the end, Rome was so desperate that Egypt, you know, with the wonderful fertility of the Nile River, Egypt was a personal possession of the emperor of Rome. And anybody who interfered with the offloading of grain into the Roman ports, um, you know, along the coastline, summary execution, because that was where they were getting all their food from at that point. So if you did anything to interfere with the offloading of that food, you would just be killed on sight. So everybody got that this was the end, right? Um, so the whole thing collapses, and then, you know, it starts over somewhere else. But that entire region around the Mediterranean was just just piece by piece destroyed by those successive empires, you know, the Phoenicians and the Egyptians and then the Greeks and finally the Romans, and then it collapsed. And the only thing that saved northern Europe from the Romans was the Alps. I mean, you had the mountains that they simply couldn't cross. So that that was what saved it. Though eventually, you know, agriculture pushes its way up through there as well, and you know, destroys all of that. There's only four free-flowing rivers left in all of Europe now. They've all been dammed. So, so, I mean, you're talking about um, you're talking about this not being sustainable, but I don't know how you can say that it's not sustainable when there's seven billion humans on the planet and. Clearly, humans are continuing to multiply, so doesn't that mean that this way of living works? I'm, I'm thinking about a New York Times op-ed I just read a couple days ago, that about a week ago, that said that, um, that ecology doesn't actually matter to humans because human survival is based on technology 
and innovation as opposed to the world. And um, and this guy is, the guy who wrote it is a scientist, so he must know. And well, I, w- I would say that human survival depends on having a livable planet and recognizing its limits. I mean, if you don't start there, you're, you're going to end no where we ended, human. which is, you know, 98% of the forests are gone and 99% of the prairies, and we are looking at complete biotic collapse, and it's just insanity. I mean, to not but, recognize basic physical limits just seems so out of touch with reality. But there's still a lot of humans. There's like 7 billion humans <laughs> on the planet, so obviously yeah, we're doing counting. really well. Okay. Well, this is the deal. Um, what we are doing, what we have been doing for 10,000 years is what's called drawdown. So there's some kind of, well, we can call it a resource, but you know maybe there are better words, a, a living community. And that community is being piece by piece dismantled and used. So while that dismantling is happening, you know, while the soil is being dr- destroyed, while the rivers are being drained, while all the fish are being killed, you know, while the topsoil is sliding off the mountains, clogging the harbors around the Roman Empire, or, you know, pick, take your pick of empire, um, and the, the trees are going and everything's being pulled down, yeah, there's a temporary blip where the, the population gets larger. Um, but, of course, you're not letting the world replenish. You're not taking in an actually sustainable way. That's why it's called drawdown, because you're drawing down, um, you know, the capacity of the world to replenish itself. So you're taking the soil, you're taking the trees, whatever. Um, eventually you will hit zero, and that's when the thing collapses. So I referenced earlier fossil fuels. So what's been happening since 1950, that's the beginning of what's called the Green Revolution. And what happened was uh, scientists figured out, well, in World War I, they figured out through the Haber-Bosch process how to take oil and gas and turn it into usable nitrogen. And originally that was used for making bombs, so for killing people. Um, and then eventually they, they also knew, I mean, scientists were well aware of the fact that we were going to run out of nitrogen. And that that was, you know, one of the basic things that plants need. I mean, if you're a gardener, you know this. Um, there wasn't going to be enough nitrogen left on the planet to keep doing agriculture. So they thought they hit a bonanza when they figured out that they could do this Haber-Bosch process. So by 1950, they had taken all these munitions plants and turned them into fertilizer factories for farming. So then all of a sudden, and which then is they one also they, you can, Which is one reason you can end up with a fertilizer factory exploding in Texas, because... Yeah, it's, it's explosive. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the same process. So it's very, very dense energy, essentially. Um, so they also made, they also did a lot of plant breeding and made the plants shrink. So less plant energy has to go to things like stems and leaves, and more can go to that giant seed head to make it even bigger with less input. So, you know, they're very clever. They do these things. But, the, of course, the ultimate problem is that it's still drawdown, except we've moved on from soil. Since that's all gone, now we're drawing down fossil fuel. So, yeah, as long as oil and gas are cheap enough, um, we can keep eating oil on a stock. But, again, this is not a plan with the future. Um, I think everybody listening probably knows that oil doesn't reproduce. You know, like the little drops of oil don't get a birds and bees talk from the big drops of oil. Um, You know, it's not going to come again once those resources are gone. So it's still drawdown, only it's an even more destructive kind of drawdown because with fossil fuel, of course, you've got oh, my God, the oil spills and the global warming and all the rest of it. So, I mean, it's just having, you know, blown through the topsoil of the planet, they're now, you know, using what's under the earth as well. And, again, this is not, I mean, this doesn't, there's no happy ending here. The only way this can end is with total collapse. You can't keep drawing down 
resources that are going to come to an end and think that there's any kind of future. I mean, this is not a way of life that was ever going to last. So a couple other problems with agriculture is if you are drawing down your own land base, that's going to lead you to militarism. So it'll lead you to conquest, because if you don't conquer somebody else, you're going to starve. So basically, once you've drawn down your own land base, then you have a choice. You can either collapse or you can expand. And so can you talk about the relationship between agriculture and expansion and also the fact that agriculture is really hard work, so agriculture and slavery? So first, whichever order you want. Okay. Well, that's the pattern of civilization everywhere. There are, there's no exception, and there can't be an exception, because once you've used up your own resources, um, you have to go out and get them somewhere else. So you've got people living... Wait, wait, wait. Let's just use an example of the local Talawa Indians who um, lived here for at least 12,500 years, and their their lifestyle was based... Their, their food, a lot of their caloric input came from salmon. So if they ate all the salmon, that means if they ate all the salmon and they killed off the salmon somehow, then that means that they would have to conquer somebody else or starve to death, right? Is this basically what you're saying? Yes. Okay, so go ahead. <laughs> I just wanted a tangible example. Sure, yeah. Um, or, you know, take the example of, it doesn't even matter, any, any civilization, you know, they're generally going to be based on one of seven or eight crops, so corn or wheat or barley or whatever, um, you know, and every year there's less and less of it because every year the soil is more and more and more degraded and more there's more salinization taking place, more salt literally in the soil. Um, and so you will see this throughout history where both the archaeological record of things like, you know, the, the strata that they, you know, can just dig through and then what's actually in the cooking pots and then if there are written records of history, you can see, you know, how one crop shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, so they try another one that is, you know, more salt-hardy, and then eventually that will collapse, too. And then you even have written descriptions of how, you know, the, the surface of the land is glistening white with salt, and what are we going to do? And it's like, yeah, they destroyed their land doing agriculture. Um, so, so, you know, you can pick your power center, but it's always the same process. So you're using up what you've got, you know, and in this process you're also destroying the rivers and you're pulling down more trees and, of course, you, you need all those things to survive and your population is too high to survive on what's there. And that's the problem with cities, right? They can't, I mean, 8 million people cannot live sustainably on the island called Manhattan. I mean, it just can't be done. So the resources have to come from somewhere else. So the food, the water, the energy. Um, and the problem is that nobody willingly gives up those things. The people who live in the watershed next to you they don't want to give you what they need. I mean, why would they willingly just die so you can have their trees and their water and their fish? They're not going to do that. So you're going to come into conflict. And this is why agricultural societies end up militarized, and they do always. And it doesn't matter what beautiful, peaceful values those people might hold in their hearts. It doesn't matter their lovely art, their music, their paintings, their frescoes, you know, what religion they might. It doesn't matter, materially speaking. They have used up their resources. They will starve to death, with death without food. They're going to have to go out and get it from somewhere else. So that's, that's why problem. it always ends up militarized. So that's, that's one big reason. So another reason is, as you mentioned, human slavery. This is backbreaking labor. Um, hunter-gatherers tend to work, what, maybe you know, 15, 20 hours a week to provide for their basic resources. Um, and the rest of the time they do uh, spiritual activities, art, 
um, naps apparently are very important, and also gossip. So that's what they love to do, and you know they got a lot of free time to do it. You can contrast that with farmers; it's just never ending, you know, from dawn to dusk. So for anyone to have leisure time in an agricultural society, they have to have slaves. And to put a, a real number on that, by the year 1800, so a lot of people demarcate that as the beginning of the fossil fuel age, 1800. Fully three quarters of the human beings alive on this planet, three quarters of them were living in some form of slavery, indenture, or serfdom. That's what it requires. And it was almost all, it was mainly agricultural, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, and we've forgotten, I mean, how much work is involved because we've been doing, using machines now to do that work. But, I mean, I can guarantee when the fossil fuel runs out, we're going to remember exactly what kind of work this is because um, it's just dawn to dusk backbreaking. So once you have that number of the population um, living in slavery, you need someone to keep them there, and those people are called soldiers, right? So when they go out into the hinterlands, into the colonies, to get those resources that everybody now needs, one of those resources is always going to be other human beings as well. So, you know, we talk about Athens as the great birthplace of modern democracy, and, you know, on and on. You know, 90% of the population of Athens, they were slaves, and, you know, that just carries through, you know, until that, that year 1800. Um, so that's number two, is slavery. Um, and then the other problem with agriculture is that it creates a surplus, and that's sort of how the whole thing keeps going, is you have to make enough so that you have some. Um, hunter-gatherers can just move on a little bit, and there's, you know, more food to eat. But with the agriculturalists, of course, starvation is always, you know, one season away. So there's always this surplus, and... The thing is, if you can store it, you can steal it. So you always have to have somebody to guard the food stores. And again, those people are called soldiers. Well, and the first cities, I learned this from Lewis Mumford, the first cities did not have walls around the outside to protect them from so-called raiders. They actually had walls around the granary to make sure that the king was able to keep control of the food supplies because it was only through keeping control of the food supplies he was able to keep control of the labor force. Yeah. So you see, this just makes this really vicious little circle, um, you know. And then the, the one, another point to keep in mind is, you know, if you can picture one of those great big naval ships, you know, that the British Navy or whoever used to conquer various colonies, um, it, it can take um, 600 old-growth trees just to make one of those ships. So war is really resource-intensive, and it, it ends. You know, like a lot of things you might produce create value in the society and the value can keep either building or at least transferring but with things that revolve around war it just dead ends right there because it's only got one purpose and when it's over everybody's dead and that's sort of the end of it so those ships you know i mean in just entire forests of the world were pulled down to make ships just for war um and this is true just all just everywhere i mean it's it's not just the british navy it's all of them um, that's what was required to build those those great big fighting vessels. Um, and so you have destroyed your forest to, you know, live in this energy-intensive way, and you've poured a whole bunch of resources, particularly into your military, not into feeding people, but into the military, created these giant ships or whatever it's going to be. And now, uh, you know, around again the vicious circle, you have to go out and conquer the people living in the region next to you so you can take their forest and make more ships to conquer more people. And this is the temporary advantage that agricultural societies have. Because they're willing to destroy their forests, um, yeah, they can build these great big ships. You know, they can do all this smelting of iron, you know, and make these incredible weapons. 
um, which are a lot harder, you know, than just wooden spears or whatever. Um, so yeah, they've got the superior military force because it's all drawdown. But then they then you're stuck in this position where you then have to conquer. You then have to use that military to go out and get more resources because you've used up yours. But it gives you that temporary advantage over the people who aren't willing to destroy their forest. So if you're the people who aren't willing, now you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because you either become militaristic and devote your forest to making an army um, so you, you kill your land, or um, you stand on principle and you're killed, and they take it. And this is why war spreads. You know, it's like the, the peaceful, you know, the gentle, peaceful, matrilineal people that, you know, we all love to romanticize. And, you know, in our dreams, that's where we go. Um, this is what happens. This is this is what they're up against every time. And there's there's it's a double bind. There's not really any way out. And that's why we're in the state that we're in. So, um There's, I guess, three questions come to mind. One is, um, since the problems are functional as opposed to just something we can change by being nicer people, um, what, why are you telling us this? <laughs> That's one question. Another question is, um, what do you want people to do with this information? And three... Well, we're about three later. So, 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 so those are the questions. Well, the reason I'm telling everybody is because I want to be hated. That's supposed to be a joke. Um, yeah. No, the reason that I'm telling everybody is because I feel like the people who care the most, um, and by that I mean radical environmentalists, radical feminists, you know, people who are profoundly committed to the planet, to justice, to a better way, by and large, do not understand the depth of the problem. And if we don't address the actual problem, we're never going to come up with solutions, right? I mean, that just seems kind of obvious. But even amongst people who just have dedicated their lives to these issues, they don't understand that it all goes back to agriculture, that that's the original activity that started us down this path of destruction. And that's the primary destruction. It's the the most destructive activity people have done to the planet. Eventually, global warming will outweigh that. But to date, it's still the most destructive thing people have done to the planet because that's what it is. It's not like agriculture on a bad day, you know, agriculture done really badly. No, this is what it is. You pull down the forest, you rip up the prairie, you destroy those biotic communities, and you replace them with this, you know, monocrop for humans for as long as it will last. Okay? And that's the problem. And then once you start doing that, you're stuck with this militaristic cycle because you've got to keep doing it again and again. While you've destroyed your own, you're going to have to go out and get somebody else's. And that's the problem. Militarism isn't just, oh, gosh, we happen to be warlike. Uh, we have a bad story in a book we consider holy. We better tell new stories. I'm a writer. I'm all for new stories. That's not going to change this. The problem is we have a way of life based on drawdown, materially speaking. Okay, We've used it all up. And we need to face that. So that's why I'm trying to get people to understand this. It's not because, you know, I actually want them to hate me, though a lot of them end up hating me. Um, I guess that's, you know, that's just the way it goes when you go up against people's beliefs. But we really have to get this, the basic wound, you know, that's been done, the basic damage. This has got to be at the forefront of our consciousness as activists and environmentalists and feminists. Wait, right? want, We're never going to be able to face it otherwise. I want to comment on the whole hating you thing, that... 
I mean, what you're saying is not actually new. I mean, basically every generation, um, there have been a number of people. I mean, this is to say agriculture is destructive. I mean, can you just list a few of the people who have talked about this? There's, there's Jared Diamond and um, Richard Manning with Against the Grain, and then about Edward Hyams. I mean, isn't there? I mean, talk no, about yeah, a few of those. Real, you're, you're, what you're saying here. is exactly right. It's like every generation, there's somebody who says the same thing, and you can go all the way back to ancient Greece to some of the earliest written texts that we have anywhere in the world, and you've got Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle all mentioning the fact that the world was being destroyed, that the rivers were being um, flooded with this mud and silt, and so there were no more fish, and all the soil was washing down off the mountains. In fact, some of the ports of of the ancient Roman Empire had to be moved 10 kilometers, 10 kilometers, because so much silt ran off the mountains and clogged um, the harbors that they kept having to move, literally move the cities. Um, you know, to the new, a new spot where the ships could actually dock. So this was all commented on. Um, they knew what they were doing. They just, nobody knew how to stop it. Um, yeah, and then you have people like George Hill in the 19th century, and then, you know, Edward Hyams in, what, 1930, 1940. Um, and then, you know, this sort of recent, more recent, you have uh, David Montgomery and his book Soil, which is absolutely fabulous. Jared Diamond basically won a Pulitzer Prize for saying, you know, more or less the same thing. Um, yeah, Richard Manning. Richard Manning has this great quote that I love, where he says, um, I like to read this, it's just a few sentences. No biologist, or anyone else for that matter, could design a system of regulations that would make agriculture sustainable. Sustainable agriculture is an oxymoron. It mostly relies on an unnatural system of annual grasses grown in a monoculture, a system that nature does not sustain or even recognize as a natural system. We sustain it with plows, petrochemicals, fences, and subsidies because there is no other way to sustain it. And that's it right there. It's a war against the natural world. So, no, I I have nothing to say that's particularly original. I mean, I think I put it together in my own way, but none of this is new information. It's just, it's not getting to the people who care the most. And that's why I feel impassioned about this. So um, what do you want people to do on two levels, Um, both the personal level and the social level? I think that the social level is the most, I mean, just, heads and shoulders far and away above, way more important than anything that anybody can do in their personal lives. And I really want to emphasize that because there are no personal solutions to political problems, and we should know that. And the problem is that a lot of the environmental movement, we've kind of been sold this idea that, you know, if we just make different consumer choices, we can somehow buy our way out of these massive global political problems, and we can't. You know, there's no set of things you can buy that's going to make really a damn bit of difference on any of this. Um, this is not a problem that, um, you know, that you can address in your personal life and, and really have that make anything but a nano difference. Um, these are really just just horrendous systems of power that we are going to have to challenge. And Wait, wait, wait. So you have, you have about um, ten minutes left. Okay. And can you do say what you're going to say, but in addition, can you give like a three-minute liberal radical distinction? <laughs> or is that possible? Okay. No, no, no. We, we, if I talk really fast. Okay. I'm from the East Coast, so I can do this. Um, 
So the main differences between liberals and radicals, there's two main differences. Uh, the first is that liberal is idealist. And what that means is that liberals tend to think that social reality is, is an idea. It have, it's a mental event. Um, and therefore, the way to make social change is education. You change people's minds. And social change happens because people have some kind of consciousness transformation or a personal epiphany or even a spiritual revelation. But that's how social change happens. It's one by one, and it's through education or rational argument because it's a rational problem, right? It's just a mental event. For radicals, it's really different. If we recognize that agriculture is destructive, then we'll stop it. Yeah, if somehow, you know, we just get the information to people, um, sort of, it'll somehow just happen. Okay. Um, very different on the radical side because radicals think that actually material, material conditions are primary, that society is not made up of ideas, it's made up of, you know, material conditions and material institutions that create those conditions. And the way that you change things is by taking power away from the powerful and redistributing that to the dispossessed. And that involves struggle. And you know, totally separate down the line, you have to make decisions about how you're going to wage that struggle, whether it's violent or nonviolent, and all of that is really important and, you know, often very ethically grueling to come to grips with, um, but that's a much later discussion. The thing to be recognized is that this requires force, that it's not a misunderstanding, it's not a mistake, the powerful aren't there because the rest of us aren't educated, um, they're there because they have power, and they're not going to give it up willingly. So it, it, you, you, you need to use some level of force, whether that's nonviolent, you know, whether it's boycotts, whether it's sit-ins, um, you know, there's plenty of nonviolent ways that have worked. So that's not about violence and nonviolence, but it's simply to recognize that this is not a mistake or a misunderstanding because it's not a mental event. It's about material systems of power that have got to be changed, that have got to be confronted and brought down. Because that's idealism versus materialism. And then the other big difference uh, between liberals and radicals is the basic social unit. So for liberals, it's always the individual. So the individual is sacrosanct, and it's always the individual against society. Um, and again, this leaves you with a strategy of sort of one-on-one you know, you can, you're sort of going to change people one by one, and that's how you change society. And for radicals, again, this is totally different. We understand that society is actually made of groups of people, so it's a class condition always, whether it's economic class, whether it's a sex caste system of gender, whether it's, you know, a racial caste system. But these are groups of people, and some of those groups have power over other groups. So it's not about you as an individual, you know. The bad things that happen to me aren't because, you know, my name is Lierre and I have blue eyes. And I like reading. You know, the bad things that happen to me is because I'm a woman, um, you know, because whatever. It's, you know, because of the different class positions that I hold. Those are the things that happen to people who are in my position. Nothing to do with me as an individual. Um, and so social change happens when the dispossessed come together and make common cause. So the solution is really written into the problem. You know, groups of people have power, but the dispossessed can come together and, and fight for themselves to change that so there's there's always hope you know in that in that condition so okay that's the difference between liberals and radicals and the problem with the a lot of the environmentalists of course is that they've completely taken up this liberalism so it's only going to change by education and you're only going to do it one-on-one and what has dropped out completely from the conversation is that there are people in power they're making money um they control armies and you know they're in control of things like exxon Mobil, and they are gutting the planet for their personal profit um, so, yeah, I mean, they've got names and addresses, as Utah Phillips very famously said. Um, we know where they live, um, and we can see how their power is organized. So our job is to take that apart, right, is to take down those institutions in whatever way we can and redistribute the power so that, you know, we all have some say in the material conditions of our lives. 
So what do I want people to do? Well, um, you know, in real broad strokes, I actually think that there's still a lot of hope because the, the, the problems, the things that we need to do to solve these problems are actually things we should be doing anyway if we care about justice. So to get justice for people also is the only way that we're going to save this planet. So it's not human race versus planet. I think it gets set up a lot that way in people's minds. It's not. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, so to get down to brass tacks, um, you know, the number one thing you can do to actually drop the birth rate is teach a girl to read. That's a really profound statement. When women have even that much more power over their lives, it means they have a little more control over the uses to which men put our bodies, and that's both sexually, reproductively, economically. Um, and the number one thing that drops the birth rate across the globe is teaching a girl to read. And we should care about that because we care about girls, right? But as it turns out, it's one of the main things we're going to have to do to save the planet. Um, right now, somewhere between one-half and two-thirds of all children that are born are either unplanned or unwanted. All we have to do is give women control over their bodies, and the birth weight drops. And that's happened in 32 countries. We now have negative or zero population growth in 32 countries. This is not the human right horrors of um, China or you know places like that where they've instituted these draconian and misogynist laws. This is simply giving women power over their lives. And that's what happens when women have a little bit of education and a little bit of power um, at, over and over. So this is the number one thing that we have to do is empower girls. And that means confronting a system of, pay, of power that's called patriarchy, right? So we're all going to have to be feminists. Gosh, what a shame. Um, and the other thing that we have to, the other thing that drops the birth rate is when you um, increase people's standard of living. People end up having lots of children when they're very, very poor. So if you raise the standard of living, the birth rate drops very quickly, in fact, um, often in a generation. You can see this happen. Um, the reason that people are poor is not because they're stupid. It's because the rich are stealing from them. And that is a global system called capitalism. So we're going to have to be against capitalism, and we're going to have to do something about patriarchy. And that is the only way that we're going to save this planet. So again, it's not humans versus planet Earth. You know, if you care about human rights, that is the only thing that, that's really going to save this situation. So my goal is, you know, over the next two or three generations, we could very easily, by simply caring about women and girls and giving them some rights over their lives, some decision-making power, drop the birth rate really dramatically, um, and then we could let the planet repair. Um, and we could be part of that repair. It's actually not that hard because the grasses in the forest want to come back. If we simply get out of the way, they will. And I'll, I'll end with one, one final bit of information, and that's really about grasslands, that if we were to take um, all of the 80% of the trashed out grasslands around the planet, which have been destroyed by agriculture, okay, that's the destruction. Um, if we were to take that 80% and return them to the grasslands that they would like to be, um, within 15 years we could sequester all of the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the industrial age. So we could stop global warming in its tracks. Because it's not us doing it, right? It's the plants that are doing it. It's those incredible grasses that would do it for us. Um, because life wants to live, and they will do that. They, well, the one thing that they are really good at is building soil. That's what prairies do. And, of course, soil, you know, the basic component is carbon. So they'll suck it out of the air, and they'll store it once more in the ground, and that could be the end of it. But we've got to stop being these monsters and destroyers. And, you know, a lot of times people, they make this argument that this is human nature. And my response to that is that it's not. We were on this planet for over two million years, and we didn't destroy anything. In fact, you can look at the first art that we ever made, and to me, it's a celebration. You know, you have the megafauna and the mega females. Those were our first 
art projects where these giant animals and these giant women. And to me, that says that, you know, in our bodies, in our brains, in our bones, um, this, this, that we have that awe and that thanksgiving, that we were trying to say thank you for our lives and for our homes. And so that was what we celebrated. And I don't think it's that far from us still. You know, I think that we could repair this planet and remember how to participate rather than dominate. Well, thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. And um, I would like to thank the listeners for listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, my guest today has been Lee Arkey. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. Oh.